Web3 with me is a discussion style podcast about the ins and outs of Web 3.0, hosted by Zach French, known as Off Edge in the verse. From crypto to NFTs, DAOs to DeFi, we cover the abstract philosophical promises and the new business models enabled in this new decentralized world. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or watch the show on YouTube. Thanks and enjoy. Zach French is a bar certified attorney and nothing expressed by Zach during Web3 with me shall be considered legal advice. All the opinions expressed by Zach and his guests are solely their own opinions. All content in Web3 with me is for informational purposes only. Zach and his podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed during Web3 with me. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for being listeners of Web3 with me. I want to take a few seconds to tell you about my exciting new B2B offering. It is the mission here to educate. I sincerely believe Web3 can make the world better for more people. Businesses shouldn't be left out, though, so I've launched The Web3 Coach. It's a bespoke education experience designed to help your team understand how Web3 affects your particular industry or company and identify opportunities unique to Web3. Whether you have a law or accounting firm with a growing number of clients participating in Web3 through crypto and NFTs, or you're a real estate syndicate looking for different ways to raise money, or teams just of fast-growing Web3 companies who want to understand your customers and your new teammates, I make sure you can talk the talk and leave feeling more confident about this crazy new world. Please take a minute to check out my website at theweb3coach.xyz. Thanks so much and enjoy the show. My guest today is Shahar Abrams. Shahar was one of the earliest Web3 educators in the Atlanta area, which is how we had the pleasure of meeting. A couple years into his consulting career with IBM, he read a book that would send him deep down the Web3 rabbit hole. He worked his way over to the enterprise blockchain team there and became a very active investor in Bitcoin, ultimately liquidating all of his funds from his first five years of working to put it in Bitcoin. He is one of my first guests with extensive DeFi experience and provides an amazing framework to think about it. Currently, he is head of product for Rodo, a company putting car titles on the blockchain. He is currently still conducting research to start a DeFi fund and producing a Web3 film. His consistent yet critical conviction in this space is fascinating. LFG, baby, let's start vibing. Welcome to the show, Shahar. Nice to have you. Thank you. Yeah, man, I'm looking forward to this conversation. I was introduced to the Atlanta blockchain community through a Chainlink event and what you were on the panel of. You had some super awesome thoughts, so I'm, I'm glad to, to be able to expand on them a little bit in the show. Absolutely. Yeah, cool. So we typically start off the uh, episodes with uh, a little bit about yourself. I call it your founding story. Um, this is going to be a bit more about what makes you you rather than Web3. But if Web3 is part of that, then of course, we're going to get to that too. So feel free to start wherever you want. All right. Um, let me think for a second. Um, so I uh, have perhaps a bit of an unconventional background. Um, moved around uh, a lot as a kid. Um, my parents, uh, when they named me Shahar, I think they, they thought we were going to live in Israel for our whole lives. It's a very common name in Israel. But that actually only lasted the first five years of my life. And then we moved to the U.S. Um, and, so, and, and we wound up uh, in Alabama, in Birmingham, Alabama. 
Um, so that I think was very unexpected. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, uh, never really felt, um, so at home in Alabama, uh, during my childhood. Um, but then later on, I sort of started to appreciate it more for what it was. And I think it took me actually leaving to come to that realization. Um, so, you know, I went to a pretty unconventional high school. It was like an arts high school, small magnet school. Uh, that was in Birmingham. I studied theater. Um, I wanted to be an actor. Um, and I think it was my dad who sort of disabused me of that notion um, early on. And, and whether he meant to or not, uh, sort of just scared me into a more practical career choice. Um, uh, which for me was, uh, you know, I didn't know what that was, but I, I wanted to go to business school. Um, I was excited by the concept of, you know, building things in the real world and, and you know, doing, um, you know, business things. And, and uh, uh, so I, I studied finance. Um, I have an uncle who's in finance um, who, you know, I think had a big influence on me and, and his career always seemed really impressive. Um, and so I studied finance in school as, uh, you know, as a thought that I would, you know, work in some investment bank or, or do something like that. And um, that I got uh, disabused of um, probably around junior year. I realized that, you know, working 60 to 80 hours at something like a Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan wasn't um, wasn't going to do it for me either. Um, and so I, I kind of went a little bit back to the drawing board. Um, and I ended up applying for a bunch of consulting jobs after college. Um, and, and, you know, pretty much consulting is what you do when you don't really know what, what you want to do. Um, and it's a good way to kind of cop out from that. Um, and, uh, you know, because you, you get to try a, a bunch of different projects, right? That's the idea. Um, and, and these consulting companies sell you on that, that, you know, you can, you can try a bunch of different things. You can see kind of what you like. You can try different functions and that, and, and it's true. I, I think it's a really uh, good experience for that. And, and my experience at IBM was, um, you know, uh, uh, probably 90, 80 to 90% positive um, through, you know, the first few years. Um, I became sort of an Excel jockey and, um, did a few projects with the uh, federal government. I was, I was in DC. I'd gone to school in DC to kind of get out of, of uh, Alabama. And when I got a job in DC, um, I, I stuck around and I ended up staying there for another six, seven years um, working in the uh, federal sector uh, uh, consulting practice of IBM. Um, and so I, I wasn't, you know, I, I was still looking, you know, during this time. And there were a couple of times when I was on projects that I wasn't really happy about at IBM. Um, and that's when, you know, I really was, you know, taking a hard look in the mirror and, and trying to figure out what it was that I, that, you know, really appealed to me. Um, one thing I kind of landed on was gaming um, because, you know, like any, uh, uh, kind of boy my age, uh, I was really into to gaming, um, spent a lot of time on it in my early 20s. And it occurred to me that, you know, maybe I, I'd work for a gaming company. Um, so I went that route. I applied to Riot Games, um, the maker of very popular game League of Legends, um, and made it uh, pretty far with them and flew out to their campus and didn't end up getting the job. 
Um, and so was a little deflated by that. Then they actually gave me a second chance at that job. They actually interviewed me again and I still didn't get it, uh, which was even more deflating. Um, and yeah, they, you know, they, they called me back and were like, Oh, we'd love to have you apply again. And then they just told me no again. Um, and, um, and it was shortly after that, that I really, that I found web crypto web three and I wasn't really called web three then in uh, 2017. But it, it was something that I had heard about um, at IBM. I'd also was aware about it from my college days, having some friends that you know used things like Silk Road. So I'd heard about um, Bitcoin before, um, but never have, had really dove into it. And I don't know exactly what made me sort of take the leap. Uh, maybe it was... Uh, a bit of a bore, mixture of boredom or disappointment from, you know, not getting uh, the job I just applied to. But I, I bought this book off Amazon. Uh, it's called Blockchain for Business, which I thought was, you know, an applicable way for me to get into it. Um, it was written by William Mugayer, who uh, was uh, a guy written in 2016, by the way, um, by William Mugayer, who had participated in the Ethereum ICO, um, was friends with Vitalik Buterin. The forward in the book was actually from Vitalik, who I had never heard about before. When I read the forward, that was the first thing I ever read by Vitalik. And I was like, who the heck, you know, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> um, and, you know, the first chapter of that book was basically an overview of the Bitcoin white paper. And I'll never forget the experience of uh, reading that. I was on an airplane. Um, flying, uh, uh, flying out of DC. And by the time the plane landed, you know, I, I knew that this is what, this is what I've been looking for. Um, this is what I wanted to focus my career on. Um, and this is what I wanted to, um, put my money behind. I knew that too, immediately. Um, so it was a really sort of transformational moment. Um, and I, you know, Totally. Uh, it was like night and day, you know, from the plane taking off to the plane landing. I'd read, you know, I hadn't put the book down. I'd read several chapters of it, but it only took that first chapter. Um, and I think that the concept that really got me was um, this idea of a trust layer, right, was a term that um, Mugayer used uh, pretty frequently. And the kind of thesis of the book was that this new technology that provided, you know, this online trust layer was going to worm its way into every sort of business process and be incredibly disrupted. And I totally, it, it made total sense to me. Um, it explained smart contracts. It explained, um, you know, permissionless peer-to-peer -peer networking. Um, it explained uh, these concepts of, you know, money that we had all taken for granted. Um, and so it, it was really, really powerful. And I just remember, I, I knew immediately, I looked up the price of Bitcoin and I was like, I'm going to buy this. Um, and, and I had, you know, and, and, and it's going to do really well. I kind of knew that too. And I immediately became kind of an evangelist. Um, and then I immediately, you know, continued to go down the rabbit hole, right? And I knew I, this is what I wanted my career to be about. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do, but I knew that, you know, this technology is something I wanted to be heavily involved in. Um, and I think the other thing I also realized was, you know, how monumental of a change this would be and how difficult it would be and how much backlash there would be. 
Um, when you, and I think a lot of people have this experience when you get the key concepts around Web3 and blockchain and Bitcoin, um, you realize how seminal, you know, of a change it is and how unprecedented it is to really, you know, take the reins of money and make money into a truly free and open system. Um, it's just something that's never really been done before. I think the closest um, comparison to it could be, you know, thousands of years ago during uh, Roman times when gold was kind of this widely used currency and it wasn't really centrally controlled and everyone could kind of trade with gold. Um, and so, you know, not to get too off topic, but that um, to me, I, I kind of saw all of these things. I saw that it would be a really, um, you know, deep, difficult, interesting um, pursuit. And so I spent, you know, the next several months um, investing. It was kind of, we were in the throes of kind of this bull market. People were starting to get really excited. Bitcoin went from 3000 to, you know, to 10,000. And it was very volatile, eventually had that kind of blow off top in, in December of 2017. And I had never really, I, I'd always liked the idea of investing. I mean, I did study finance. Um, I, you know, bought some stocks, uh, in college and I would, you know, join the, uh, quarterly earnings report calls and I would listen in and think I was, you know, uh, some sophisticated investor. Um, but really I had, you know, no idea what I was doing. I think I bought Amazon stock was one of the stocks that I bought. Um, one of the first stocks I bought at maybe like $400, I sold it at 600. Um, and so I, I didn't, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, but now, uh, Crypto made it much more real and personal for me. Um, and so I started paying a lot more attention. I started really getting excited. And, you know, I slowly put more and more money in, right? Um, and in 2017, 2018, you know, I made the classic mistake of, you know, I, I, made, I mean, I was lucky because I, I got in at a really good time just when I happened to really uh, have it click for me. Um, and the market was, you know, on its way up, it had been going up for a while. Um, but you know, it kept going up and I made a whole lot of money. Um, I felt, uh, insanely rich. I think, you know, I, I made like a hundred thousand dollars, which at the time I was like 20, um, 25 or 26. Uh, and that was, that was a whole lot to me, uh, more than I'd ever had. And so I felt great. And then obviously through 2018, 2019, I saw that all bleed away. Um, and that was a very difficult experience um, for me uh, personally. Um, and, you know, it, it was something that really uh, dialed me in even more, actually. Um, you know, I, I, I had a great benefit, which is I had this great clarity that this is what I wanted to do. And that, you know, I really, obviously, I was in it to make money like everyone else, but it was secondary. Um, and I, I kind of always knew that and I adopted, you know, a very long-term view. And I knew, you know, that, you know, this is, this was a technology and this was a sea change that would take many years to play out. Um, so, um, so, so I was long-term oriented, uh, from the beginning and that gave me the, um, conviction to sort of keep, investing, right? Even through the 18, 19 bear market, um, and keep learning. Um, and I, uh, eventually after about a year of, 
trying and, and bothering people at IBM, I eventually was able to join IBM's new um, federal sector blockchain practice uh, that we had, we had stood up. And I was able to start working on um, blockchain implementations in the real world around real use cases for federal government clients. So without getting to, I can talk more about projects that we did uh, there before. And it's interesting because now I've actually sort of come full circle, not in terms of working on government projects specifically, but working on enterprise blockchain solutions um, with a, a company that I recently joined. Um, and so I just to take go quickly through uh, the rest of the story. I spent a couple of years building uh, blockchain pilots with IBM for, for federal clients. Um, there were ups and downs there. It, it was a, a challenging process. Um, COVID uh, really put a dent in that. When that hit, it, it cratered um, the budget of the agency we were working for, which really put our project on hold. That was a source of some frustration. Um, then we had you know, the bull market of 2020, 2021, um, really take my portfolio um, places I, I never thought it would go. And I made the decision at the beginning of 21 to um, mo focus more on the public you know, uh, side of crypto. Um, I'd been working mostly on the uh, enterprise and permission side, working with things like Hyperledger Fabric um, and, at IBM. And I wanted to really dive more into things like Ethereum and Cardano, which I was you know, part of at the time. And course, Bitcoin and many, you know, other projects. And so I, I left IBM and I just became sort of a full-time um, DGen and researcher and, uh, uh, and, and educator. I moved to Atlanta. I started uh, meetup groups here and I was really passionate about spreading the word on um, this uh, technology and this ecosystem and what I was increasingly seeing as a movement, right? Um, around Web3 and this technology. And so I started meetup groups here in Atlanta. Um, I started doing some educational stuff. I, I worked on a course for a few months uh, in 2021, um, released that to pretty little fanfare. Uh, marketing has never been one of my strong suits. And so, and there were also uh, pretty big challenges around marketing any sort of crypto content um, in like a course format on YouTube. And so I, and in other places. So I ran into that, um, got a bit burned out of that and decided I, I really just wanted to um, do more researching, do more um, participation, you know, participating in things like DAOs, um, get deeper into the NFT space and just spend more time, you know, learning uh, on my own. Um, and uh, that out of that sort of grew, um, you know, I, I started doing some consulting uh, privately for uh, startups in the public ecosystem around uh, people I'd met, you know, in the NFT space, in DeFi, uh, projects I'd been involved in since 2018, 2019. As an investor and community member, I started to get more involved and, and actually do some projects for them. Um, and, you know, I, I got really deep into DeFi and did some pretty cool stuff uh, in DeFi. Um, I used a platform called Abracadabra to take a large, you know, over collateralized loan, um, bought some things IRL, um, 
while, you know, I would, and I found it amazing where I could do that and still earn interest on my collateral. This was like a really cool use case to me. Um, for DeFi, I wrote an article about that uh, for the Defiant and, um, you know, kept, uh, yeah, I guess just, you know, kept messing around with, with uh, applications, things in DeFi, kept, kept doing classes, kept doing some advising and consulting and was, you know, sort of just um, floating around, right, and, and, and chilling out, uh, frankly. Um, and once again, you know, I think the, the bear market caught me a little bit off guard. Uh, and it's funny, you know, looking back at the progression of myself as an investor from, you know, 2017, 2018, you know, knowing, knowing nothing about risk management and sort of just riding everything completely back down, not having this concept of, um, uh, risk management, I guess, frankly, um, to, uh, this prior cycle to where I did have this in mind. Right. And I knew, you know, about risk management. I knew I had to do things like take profit. I knew, you know, um, these type of things. So I did a lot better and I had this idea of a risk management framework in place. Um, yet I was not able to, in my mind, adequately sort of execute on it. So it's one thing to, you know, know you need to do risk management. And that's another thing to actually put the things in place, right, to execute on performing that risk management um, in your personal portfolio. And so that was something I, I certainly could have done better. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it became another learning experience. And, and I felt much the same way as I did in 2018, um, uh, which was, you know, kind of funny and also frustrating um, because I, I remember, you know, it's painful, you know, to, to lose so much money and having it, you know, happen to you sort of again, even if you, you've done like sort of better, um, is, uh, for me, you know, someone, I, I try to hold myself to a higher standard and, um, I, I was a little bit miffed. And so that again, you know, motivated me to, um, you know, keep working harder and start some new projects. And, um, I decided to, um, there's an opportunity to uh, join a startup that was doing working on um, a real use case back in the permission blockchain space that I was a really good fit for, uh, considering my my experience with IBM. Um, and I've joined them uh, as as head of product, and uh, we're building uh, I think something that you know hopefully will will be really uh, positive for overall adoption of this technology, which is which is what I really. Um, care about. And so that sort of brings us to the present day. Um, uh, there's a bunch of other things I'm working on, but I, I've been talking for a while. So um, uh, maybe I'll stop and we can dive into whatever, uh, whatever it is you want. Nick. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. That was, it was extensive, but it was useful because as I was listening to you, uh, I see a lot of parallels between your experience and a lot of my guests' experience. But mainly, one thing I want to start with double-clicking on is, what was your experience purchasing Bitcoin in 2017? Was it easy for you? Were you on a centralized exchange? What was that like? Yeah, it was pretty easy. Um, I just went through Coinbase. That was okay. the only place I knew at the time. Um, and so... Yeah, it, it actually wasn't hard. I didn't do any self-custody stuff. Um, I kept everything on Coinbase. 
Um, I think I, it wasn't until 2018 that I got a bit more into self-custody and I bought like a ledger. Um, in the beginning, I was just buying on Coinbase. And I, yeah, I was just on it on various exchanges and I was degening and I, I, was, I went on to Bittrex and Binance. And this is where my crypto basically was. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, to see, I mean, you can you can follow some of the most influential voices in the space with much bigger audiences than either you or I have, and they may have sold in 2018. So <laughs> I find it like very very cool that you are able to maintain that level of conviction because, as I've studied investing, just like you have, um, psychology is the biggest part of it. I mean, a lot of people can have an inkling as to where what the future might be. And as you kind of alluded to in this bear market, there's a difference between knowing what to do and actually doing it, right? Uh, there's a beautiful book. I don't know if you've ever read The Psychology of Money. No, I, I haven't. Morgan Housel, uh, great read, but you know, just the, the highest level synopsis of it is there's really two skills that people have. They have the ability to earn money and they have the ability to keep money. Uh, is one of the big lessons from the book. And um, he just went on uh, Bankless Podcast and did, uh, and, and this is someone that I think doesn't hold any crypto, but that psychology of, of making money while it is fast-tracked in crypto is still the same, just as it would be for someone investing in index funds, right? Yeah, there's another great quote, which is uh, making money is really easy. The hard part is keeping it. Yeah, which is, is fair. I mean, that's the difference between, you know, normal people and Warren Buffett, right? Like <laughs> that ability to just stay the course, but that's pretty cool that you kept the conviction. So were you just dollar cost averaging that whole time? Uh, basically when 2018 hit, just continuing? Yeah, um, pretty much. And I didn't have a, a strict dollar cost averaging plan. Uh, like people, including me say that you're supposed to. Um, so it's not like every month I was clockwork going in and just buying a little bit. I would, it ended up being a bit like that because I, you know, every paycheck I would I would put it in, and I got paid on a on a consistent basis. So yeah, every month I would put in. But then slowly, uh, what I was doing also is I was selling all of my other traditional investments um, here and there to to go in as well. And so I sold my, um, you know, I sold all my my mutual funds. I sold my stock investments. I ended up selling my. IBM stock, my company stock, I ended up selling my 401k. Um, I just, there, there is no other place I wanted to be. And I think one, and that, you know, was very risky, but it, it obviously worked out for me. Um, but in my mind, it, it was a, a very calculated risk. It's something I actually did think a lot about and did very intentionally. And to me, um, the idea was, you know, I, I, and, and this is, is, you know, not everyone's like this, but I like to be, I'm, I'm an activist investor. I want to be hands-on investing my portfolio and I want to know what I own, right? Um, and so in the case of mutual funds, you know, right, the idea is you buy a basket of, of, you know, good stocks and you just wait and you let someone else manage it for you. You might not know what you even hold, um, but you're going to do okay, right? You're not going to get killed. You're not going to do spectacularly. Um, but you're, you're not going to lose sleep and that's great. And that's great for lots of people. Right. And, and, you know, um, but I came to this realization that, you know, I, I also thought, you know, in my, uh, pride and arrogance that I had this key insight that, you know, that, that 
people weren't really getting that, you know, this technology was way, way bigger and way more important than people really realized. And I really felt that, you know, I, you know, I, I had this kind of edge just, just in sort of uh, knowing that, right, with, with such high conviction. That, I guess, is what conviction is, right, <laughs> to think that. And you have to have a bit of a, a bit of hubris to, to stay the course. Yeah, and, like, and it, it was also grounded on some reality because you know I, I was working in the space, um, and one thing I think what built my conviction the most, frankly, was uh, going to conferences through 2018 and 2019, um, and talking, you know, meeting other people in the space. Um, really, uh, I, I would just say meeting other people in the space, whether it was at a conference or it was just somewhere around DC where I found a meetup group or it was someone in the industry, or it was just on YouTube, watching people that had been in the space for a while, like Andreas Antonopoulos, or these other people that had high conviction, and hearing their passion, right, and their conviction, um, and meeting people that were really building, right, and that weren't, weren't focused on the price, right? I had never, you know, I, I had never been in an industry where everyone was so passionate and so smart and so um, convicted, right, in what we were doing, and that we all shared this vision of this is so much bigger, you know, than what it is now, and this is a multi-year journey, and you know, we are going after the mediation of value in society, like as a whole. It's, it's, it's such a big idea, and so you know, seeing that, and then simultaneously, you know, when you read all the doom and gloom stuff that people are writing, you know, no one is on that threat, right? Um, no, no one's on that threat. So there was this massive disconnect, and that's what gave me. And still does give me, you know, massive conviction in this space is, you know, I, I don't think, you know, I think it's it's discounted, you know, just how strong the movement is um, and how many, frankly, you know, really, really smart people we have working in this space. Um, and so that, you know, is what did and still does, you know, give me all this conviction. And, and that, you know, insight that I felt like I had, right, was what made me feel like this was a better investment for me than holding all these mutual funds. And. Uh, I was also in a position, right, like you, I'm sure I read all these, you know, books on investment theory and the idea of like, oh, well, when you're young, you can take these, you know, bigger risks. And so I just, you know, went full into that. And as a someone in um, their, you know, mid to late 20s uh, with a good corporate job, um, with no debt, thankfully, um, with, you know, single, with no no kids or dependents, um, no one I had to take care of. Um, I mean, all of that stuff was quite fortunate, right? Um, and uh, uh, that's a big part of it, right? Um, uh, so, you know, I was able to kind of go in pretty hard and I was able to mentally take that risk of, you know, I'm betting the first five years, you know, of my income uh, from my career um, on this idea. And, you know, if it works out, then, you know, I, I jump ahead several years, you know, towards, uh, retirement um, or towards, you know, my financial goals, let's say. Um, and if I'm wrong, then, you know, I've lost five years of income and I'm going to keep working um, same as I was before. And, you know, um, that's it. Right. Um, so I, I made that calculated risk. I don't think it was, you know, of course, everyone told me I was crazy, you know, when I would tell them I'm 90 percent. I was going to say, what did your parents say? Did you talk to them about it? Oh, yeah. They told me I was crazy. Um, <laughs> uh, my, my uh, you know, my uncle in finance told me I was crazy. My my coworkers told me I was crazy. Every, everyone did. There, there were very, the only people that didn't tell me I was crazy, um, and there were uh, still exceptions that were people in crypto, right, that shared my... Uh, that shared my, you know, cult-like conviction. Um, 
It brings up a good point, though, because if you think about it, you've got to balance, uh, you know, the groupthink mentality with reality. But it sounds like you started off with so much conviction yourself without even meeting these people that when you went there, it was almost like a reinforcement, right? Rather than like a... And, and oh, I mean, I'm, that's a very good point. There's certainly groupthink going on and groupthink goes both ways. On the one hand, there was the groupthink of this guy's it must be crazy. You know, who would do this? This technology is a scam. And now on the other hand, there's a groupthink that, you know, this will solve everything, right? Um, and so, yeah, uh, you know, it is a balance and I've, I've failed at that ba- balance, um, you know, usually on the, this will solve everything side, right? Because that's what I I'm prone to. And, um, yeah, that's, that's, um, that's come back to bite me, you know, on a few occasions, uh, both, uh, personally as an investor and, and, fr- and professionally, you know, in my time as IBM thinking, you know, we can apply this to everything and then learning, you know, actually, no, you, you can't. Right. Still, um, we're still having that conversation today. In fact, I'd say it's one of the most relevant conversations right now. Right. <laughs> Every right. everybody that you talk to that is uh, genuinely open minded, um, I, I would say, like, yes, there is the the occasion for the uh, you're crazy, just like flat out. I don't even want to hear it. But there is just a lot of really smart people that I talk to. Most of them are in tech um, that are willing to see an alternative future based on this technology, but are having trouble finding the real applications for it. Um, and, and, and won't take Bitcoin as an alternative currency as just the only application, right? Like we're talking, how are the smart contracts going to apply? How, what is Ethereum actually going to do other than create new speculative assets? Um, yeah. And, and that is an area that I, I feel good about now, you know, having gone through sort of the trials and, you know, since 2018, been thinking about that, you know, diff- apply, how to apply different use cases in a, um, you know, both in an enterprise, um, you know, uh, uh, situation and out in the wild. You know, I, I'm now I will say I'm now much, much more discerning than I was uh, three years ago, even one even one year ago. You know, every, every year I think I get a bit more discerning about, well, what can this actually work for and what what's actually a really good use case? And I think that's what made me, um, you know, valuable to startups um, and, and other kind of thing, because I can you know, I can I can now look people in the eye and tell them, you, you know, this, this is a crazy idea. You know, you don't need Web3 for this or something like that. Right. Um what are some of the, do you have any off the top of your head that, without like uh, discrediting anybody that where you're just like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to, to call out um, something that, or, or, you know, make, a, bit more make a point is more of a broad concept, but, uh, you know, generally you need, uh, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll just be high level. Like uh, you, you generally only need, you know, web, web, what does web three solve, right? Ultimately it solves coordination between um, parties that are, for whatever reason, uncoordinated. Uh, usually they're uncoordinated because of data. Um, sometimes it can be uncoordinated because of rules, right? Or, um, you, you know, and so what Web3 helps you to do is to bring that, you know, together and create kind of an incentive-based uh, system, a value-based system at a network level um, create a rules-based system at a network level, right? And then, you know, be able to apply that. So what you really want to look for is network level problems, right? Problems that, you know, are right bigger than just a single company or a single, uh, actor, you know, in a, in an ecosystem, um, and solve some sort of coordination problem there. 
Um, and then, you know, you still have to ask the question, you know, could we solve this? You know, do we need a, a distributed ledger, right? To put, it, it, data has to be some part of it, right? Because if data is not some part of it, you know, you can make a, you know, some a rules manifesto and just agree to follow it and you don't need to do all this um, crazy engineering, right? So, so I think, you know, that that's the key, right? Um, uh, you have to have data coordination issues between multiple parties in the ecosystem. That's interesting and, and kind of begs the, the normal question that I ask, which is how you describe Web3. I think you just described how Web3 might apply. Is there anything else in terms of describing Web3 to people that you typically use to help them grasp it other than the typical rewrite yeah. tone? Um, what I've become a big fan of using um, through a lot of trial and error is describing Web3 as a concept of the Internet of Value. And obviously, I didn't come up with this. Um, but it's a really elegant description because you can parallel it to what came before, right? So Web2, and, and people are really familiar with Web2 now, right? And everybody knows, you know, we use these applications every day and they're a big part of our lives. Um, and so Web2 is the Internet of Information, right? Um, and the way I like to explain it and think about it is that, you know, before Web2, um, we had these gatekeepers of information, right? Because we had to. We didn't have a way to really, really efficiently, um, you know, uh, uh, make information flow, um, you know, at the scale of, you know, the world, right? Um, and Web2 gave us that ability, right? Uh, the simplest example is a text message, right? Text messaging is permissionless. Um, you can now... Um, you know, just with someone's 10 digit phone number, right, you can send them information, right? Now you can send them almost any type of information, um, just with that data, same with the email, right? Um, and so that's very easy to grasp. Um, and now, you know, when you think of Web3, well, we have a different uh, number, it's longer than 10 digits, but this is now your wallet address. And rather than your destination where you get information, it's your destination where you get value. And so if I know your wallet address, all I need is an internet connection. And now I can send you value. I can send you money. I can send you NFTs. I can send you, you know, assets. Um, and so, so that's the massive, uh, the simplest way to explain it, right? That, that's the massive sea change that we have. Um, we've moved from, you know, sending information to phone numbers to sending value to wallets um, at this permissionless global scale. That's awesome. That's a great way of explaining it. And that's, it's unique too. uh, you being the 21st episode, uh, of the podcast as the first time that anybody's ever explained, they've explained it as value, but not in that way with that comparison. So thanks for sharing that. Um, one thing I wanted to hop into, um, is DeFi. I haven't had a lot of guests in DeFi. I have done hours of research on it. I still feel like I don't know shit to be frank. Uh, (laughs) Uh, what could you provide just like, I know that you were very into it and you talked about specific experiences with Abracadabra. Is there like general frameworks, uh, other than just like, it's money, money Legos, um, that you use to help teach people and, and, and also to help yourself learn by breaking it down to certain components and learning, you know, where the tech is, is developing and where it's struggling and that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Great way. And I've, I've done a lot of education on this in Atlanta. Um, and so hopefully I've arrived at some pretty good ways to explain it too. Um, but the way I like to explain DeFi is, you know, it's just FI, right? Finance. Um, but we've applied, you know, this open access, permissionless, transparent framework to it. 
Um, so the idea, and, and here's how I sort of like to begin here. You know, you can think of, uh, let's again, let's look at Web 2, right? Um, so in Web 2, you had uh, these massive success stories like Uber and Airbnb, right? So what did they do? Um, well, Uber became the largest taxi company in the world, and they didn't have to own any cars, right? Because they just coordinated sort of a network via using information. Here's where your passengers are. Here's where you need to take them. Here's the best route, and we, we'll just connect you, right? Um, uh, right? They applied that to the problem. Airbnb did the same thing. They just made it so anyone can provide their actual assets, right, and can be uh, – you know, can, can act like a hotel. And so Airbnb became the largest hotel company without them owning any real estate. DeFi has applied sort of the same model to finance. So in Uniswap, right, anyone can be a liquidity provider, right? Um, and Uniswap has, is becoming, uh, they aren't yet, right? But they, they have become one of the largest exchanges without owning any assets, right? They don't own any assets. They say, bring your own assets and you can participate um, um, in, in this, uh, right in this area. Um, so just like you would bring your own car to go drive for Uber, you can bring now your own money to LP on Uniswap. Now, what does it mean to LP? So, um, and, and this requires, right, some knowledge of financial plumbing, right? Because that's what this all is. Um, you know, you, in, in the financial sector, right, there's kind of three key functions, right? There's payments, you know, you have to be able to pay someone else, right? That's simple. There's exchange, right? I have to, if I have something that you want something, we have to be able to trade and we have to decide what my asset is worth versus your asset so we can trade these things and avoid, you know, barter systems. Um, and then uh, there's lending and loans, right? So if I, you know, if, if, if I have a lot of money and you don't have a lot of money and you have a great idea, you want money, right? Um, and I'm not using my money right now, I can loan you my money, right? Earn a little bit of an interest rate and you can go do what you need to do, right? Buy a house, start a business, right? Very, very important function, right? And that's existed for thousands of years. All these things existed for a very long time, right? Um, and they've, uh, their proliferation has led to, um, you know, massive improvements in society, right? As we efficiently can allocate capital and allow people to build their good ideas, right? Um, so we're just taking those same functions, right? And we're making them uh, more accessible and more permissionless, right? So now anyone can be a lender, right? Anyone can be, anyone can facilitate exchange, right? Anyone can be a market maker. So in this exchange function, right? To circle back to what I was talking about earlier, right? In order to allow for these exchange of assets, what you have to do, you have to kind of have inventory, right? You have to have... Um, I have to have a certain, if I'm trying to buy bananas and, you know, I have oranges, but we have to have a stock of bananas and a stock of oranges so that if someone wants to trade some, you know, someone is providing that to allow for the exchange. That's called market making. Um, this is an activity that is relegated to a certain few financial institutions, right? That would do this and they would make a whole lot of money off of it, right? Um, because they would make money on the spread, right? Or they would charge fees for the service. Um, so classic kind of intermediary, right? Um, Uniswap and the decentralized exchange model, right, around um, uh, asset pools, right, means that anyone could create this pools of assets. Well, I have both oranges and bananas, and I'm not using them, so I want to provide them to the marketplace, right? Put them in the store, literally, 
and allow people to buy or sell them, right? Um, and so I'm just like I would bring my car to go drive for Uber, right? I'm bringing my um, oranges and bananas and my other assets and putting them onto this marketplace, Uniswap, and allowing people to buy and sell. And now I earn the fees from that, right? And so what is this? Uh, I can kind of distill this into, you know, you can be the house, right? So, so that, that's what, how these people make money is they're the, how they don't really care how many bananas you buy versus how many oranges they want there to be perhaps some balance. They don't want to run out, but they don't care. You know, some people are going to buy bananas. Some people are going to buy oranges. It's fine. What we care about is that people are doing it because every time someone buys it, you know, I charge a little bit of fee, um, as a market maker. And so all we've done is we've democratized that, um, just like Uber did, right? Um, and, and so we're applying these models to the financial sector and why, you know, and it should kind of click for you if, if you're listening earlier, right, to the idea of the internet of value, why the financial sector, right? Because if, if as the internet of value, we are coming after the intermediaries of value, right? Well, all the financial sector does is intermediate value. That's why they exist. Um, so it's a very kind of clear place to start. And I think that's why DeFi has been the first big use case to come out of Web3 um, to really find product market fit, right, as well, um, because, you know, it, it's a perfect use case, right, for public permissionless Web3, right? Um, let's take these, you know, value intermediaries and rebuild a system where we don't need them and th therefore we can capture more value um, to the users, right? Um, so the power of DeFi is that anyone can be the house. If you want to be a lender, you can go be a lender and you can earn that interest rate on Aave. If you want to be a borrower, you can, you know, go be a borrower. And, you know, there are some advantages to going to a bank, right? You can you can borrow permissionlessly. You can do it at a few clicks of a button. Um, it's really convenient. You can monitor it. You can close it out. There are lower fees. Um, that's all That's all great, right? And I did that um, uh, via Abracadabra and I've done it on other platforms as well. Um, if you want to pay someone, obviously you can pay someone. If you want to do your payroll, you can set up your payroll on a Web3 app, right? And have it drip out every second, right? And allow people to claim it whenever they want. Um, so all of these, you know, key functions, right? We are recreating, um, you know, we're not really reinventing the wheel, right? It's still exchange. It's still lending, borrowing, you know, nothing fundamentally has changed about those things. Um, but we've made them easier, more accessible, and we've lowered the rent in between, right? By removing some of these intermediaries and basically making them into protocols, right? Um, so that's how I would, you know, explain DeFi simply is, you know, you have the opportunity now to participate in these core financial um, applications, right? As anyone, all you need is capital and all you need is, you know, a MetaMask. Yeah. Makes sense. I, I appreciate that. That is also one of the better explanations I've heard because it's super easy when you think about those three buckets of finance uh, and then how it's being facilitated. Then I assume uh, it, then Uniswap is also taking a cut of those fees. That's how they function, right? Yeah. So every protocol will have sort of a fee split um, where they'll pay the providers of the capital, mm -hmm. right? And then they'll also take a protocol fee. And so they still make money. Right. right. But their protocol fee is one, it's very transparent, it's programmatic, so you can trust it. Um, and uh, two, it's, uh, you know, it, it's very competitive, right? Because you have a lot of these uh, protocols. Um, a lot of times, you know, making a competitor is as easy as easy as copying a bunch of the open source code and adding a couple of twists, 
right? So it's a very, very competitive space that drives down, you know, the protocol fees. Um, and so, you know, that, you know, we'll see that, you know, protocol fees will tend towards, you know, lower and lower, um, or, you know, the, the protocol will have to provide some, some really big value add to justify higher fees. Um, because, you know, capital in Web3 is, is very, very, um, you know, it, it can move really, really easily. Right? Very fluid. Um, right, exactly. That's the word I was looking for. Very, very fluid. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, that, that competition is good for all of us. Yeah, I might, I might have to bring you back on. I kind, of, I kind of want to do a whole episode on this. This is uh, super interesting to me. Um, I do want to wrap up, though. We're hitting the top of the hour and uh, ask you my traditional closing question, um, which is, where do you see yourself uh, and Web3 in the next six to 12 months? So short, maybe midterm. Um, and then where do you what's your like big, hairy vision for Web3 and yourself in five to 10 years as you kind of extrapolate your teachings over your over your years of interacting with it? Sure. So um, six to 12 months, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be here. Uh, there's a few things I'm working on, which I'll just go really quickly. Um, continuing to do my you know, to do a community building here in Atlanta and have met a lot of great people, including yourself, you know, that are helping to do that more and more. Um, and it's becoming more and more of a team effort. Uh, so we're throwing a conference um, with Georgia Tech um, in November, uh, web3atl.io. I uh, really encourage you, especially if you're local in Atlanta, to check it out. Um, uh, uh, tickets are not that much. If you're a student, it's free. Um, we're going to have a bunch of great speakers as well as a hackathon. Um, it'll be one weekend in November. Um, uh, also, I mentioned I just started a new job as head of product for Roto Blockchain Title. Uh, so this is a company where we are trying to basically take uh, car titles. So we saw that there's a large data coordination problem in the car industry around the transfer of titles, right? Something that is a paper-based process that has to move through several different parties, dealerships, you know, buyers, sellers, uh, DMVs, lenders, right? All have a hand, you know, um, in this process and it's all on paper. It's extremely cumbersome. It results in a lot of tied up working capital. Because uh, you can't, you know, really sell the car until you have the title in hand to give to the other person, right? Um, so we're trying to take this process and move it onto blockchain, make these car titles into NFTs, essentially, right? And allow you to, um, you know, have your car title living as an NFT in your wallet. And then when you need to transfer it, you just send a transaction, right? Um, and we have to build, of course, not that simple. You have to build a whole bunch of business rules, make sure the DMV signs off, but hopefully move all of them onto this uh, sort of hybrid permission public a blockchain network, you know, to allow to to improve this process. So very excited about that. Just started a few weeks ago, um, and this is going to be a journey. Um, also, uh, I've started um, doing a bunch of uh, more formalized DeFi research with a bunch of guys at Georgia Tech. So I have about four or five analysts working for me as we work to systematically evaluate a bunch of uh, DeFi protocols. Um, and this is more on the investment side, right? We, we have a long-term thesis about DeFi. Um, and so we're starting to build out more of a framework, a research framework, and then eventually perhaps a fund um, to, you know, really uh, put put our money where our mouth is and help a lot of other people as well, right, invest into DeFi for the long term. Um, so, you know, if what I said resonated with you about what DeFi is and where it's going and what it enables, um, you know, and maybe, like you said, maybe we could do another episode about this. Um, 
you know, that, that is uh, uh, something you might be interested in. Um, and then thirdly, and I'll just tease us a little bit, um, I am working on um, a movie, a little film um, that is related to crypto. Um, and that is a project I'm very excited about. You know, you heard my, my origins are in uh, uh, theater and acting and stuff like that. I'm not going to be an actor in it. <laughs> Those days are, are, are gone. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I, I, very, very, you know, excited about this project where hopefully we can tell some of Web3's story in, in a really interesting way through film medium. Um, Love that. Now the yeah the longer term that's all that's all six to twelve months. Um, yeah, 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 we got a lot to work on in six to twelve months. <laughs> I yeah, I mean, look, I'm not going anywhere. Um, so I'm going to be in this industry. I don't know exactly what I will be doing, um, but I, I want I like I think I will can be continuing to work with startups. That's what I've really enjoyed the most in my journey the past couple of years of trying out a bunch of different stuff. I really love working with startup founders. Um, I really love working on new ideas. Um, I really love, you know, helping participate and, and, you know, building a lot of, you know, Web3 based products that move the needle um, towards more adoption and success stories, you know, of this tech, uh, which is really what we need, you know, to avert, um, you know, the, the worst, the worst inclinations of certain regulators, let's say. So, um, so I will, you know, keep, I, I'm going to keep working to that end. And I hope that, um you know, a lot of you will join me. Sweet. Well, thank you. That's a, a great place to wrap. And we'll definitely be having you back on for both DeFi and then also this idea of uh, record keeping, um, uh, you know, what you're working on now, where blockchain is just one of the tremendous use cases, but the people that are the groups that you have to work with in the government may be a bit slower moving. So I'll be following that closely as, as you progress. Um, I appreciate your time, Char, and uh, glad, I, glad I got to meet you. Absolutely. Same, same to you, Zach. Thank you. Thanks for joining Web3 with me. Make sure to follow us on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Also, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review as it'll help us reach more people. If you want to connect with me personally, you can find me on Twitter at offedge underscore. Thanks for vibing in the verse with me and hope you'll join us next time.